From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. This week, we go into the new decade with an expert's look at the last one. We examine how tax policies evolved through the 2010s and how the U.S. and nearly every other country in the world tackled globalization and the digitizing economy. Mary Gilmartin is a tax law analyst in the U.S. International Group in the Federal Tax Practice of Bloomberg Tax and Accounting. She's worked at the IRS Office of Chief Counsel on both domestic and international tax matters. She's also worked at the International Tax Council Office at Treasury and the Federal Insurance Office at Treasury. Most recently, she worked at the Washington National Offices of Deloitte and KPMG. So basically, she knows everything there is to know about tax. (laughs) Welcome, Mary. Thanks for having me, Siri. And thanks for the gross exaggeration (laughs) about my knowledge. So, Mary, in the past decade, we've seen rapid changes to the economy due in large part to the boom of Internet companies and the evolving e-commerce sector. In short, we're watching globalization. You're here today to talk us through how tax policy has kept pace with globalization or not over the past decade, especially with respect to digitalization. So let's start with a bird's eye view of tax policy at the start of the decade. What were the concerns of IRS and Treasury in 2010? In 2010, Treasury and the IRS had lots of concerns in the international arena. Uh, But what they were able to accomplish and what they were concerned about are two very different things. What happened in 2010 was, of course, the legislation the Obama administration got out having to do with the Affordable Care Act. And part of the Affordable Care Act was the uh, FATCA provision. FATCA stands for the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. That act addressed foreign accounts held by U.S. persons. This provision affected not just corporations, U.S. corporations with foreign accounts, but also individuals. This was a huge provision enacted by Congress because previously on your tax return, there is a tiny little box that says, do you have a foreign bank account that most people simply ignored? But now here was a provision that required foreign banks to report if they had U.S. account holders. So this required not just U.S. people to self-report, but it also required foreign banks to cooperate. And there were sanctions if they didn't cooperate. So this reflected the fact that borders were disappearing. Not only were corporations having operations cross-border, but people were traveling and moving around. They were having multiple residences in different jurisdictions. They were having family members in multiple jurisdictions. I myself had two brothers with wives, with dual citizenship, and accounts in multiple jurisdictions. So when FATCA came out, I had to notify family members to report their foreign accounts in different jurisdictions. So FATCA is the U.S. government's acknowledgement that the world is getting smaller, and it wants to make sure it's holding on to its piece of the pie, right? FATCA wasn't necessarily a new tax. It was just a compliance measure, making sure everyone's paying their taxes. And on that front of compliance, there were concerns coming off the 2008 financial crisis that companies weren't paying their fair share of taxes. It wasn't that companies were illegally evading 
but lawfully avoiding taxes by headquartering in countries with low or zero tax rates. As long ago as I was working at Treasury and the chief counsel's office, there have been concerns that multinational corporations may not be reporting all of their income and were lawfully uh, organizing or headquartering themselves in jurisdictions with low or zero effective tax rates, although some U.S. corporations were able to effect a zero effective tax rate by headquartering in the United States, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, that, so yes, that is something that was a very big issue in the international arena. In fact, that was a huge motivator for the OECD and their BEPS project, the base erosion and profit shifting program that initiated, I believe, in 2012. The countries got together and started looking at what they could do to prevent some of these or put some attention on these uh, perceived tax avoidance schemes. And so what was at the heart of that OECD conversation? Was it just companies are getting up to some tricky stuff or was it something more focused and specific? Well, there were 36 countries about involved in the OECD. And so I think that there were a lot of motivators involved, depending on which jurisdiction you came from. So I don't want to speak for every country, and I'm sure every country would not like me to speak for them. But some of the big motivators were simply modernizing the tax laws in various jurisdictions. And and in the process of modernizing their respective tax systems, what they started doing in 2012 was coming up with the primary areas that they thought in a consensus mode were in need of modernization. And that's how they came up with the 15 action plans, some of which the United States bought into, some of which the MLI, for example, the United States is not as interested in participating in. The multilateral instrument, which some people refer to and arguably is a treaty, it's a multilateral treaty, where bilateral treaties can be modified uh, by signing on to certain provisions of the multilateral instrument. There are huge, well, there are relatively complicated procedures for participating in it. The United States does not participate in the MLI, Action 15. There are other actions which I think that maybe we can discuss as we go on, such as Action 1, which is the digitalization, digital economy action. So one of the big sticking points with that first action point of the BEPS plan is determining physical presence, um, what we call nexus in tax. What the internet has changed about e-commerce is uh, the way people buy products and the way companies sell them. So while that conversation was ramping up on the international level, the same conversation was happening at the state level in the U.S. There was a Supreme Court case actually involving the popular furniture sale company called Wayfair. Um, Tell us about how that case evolved over the decade. Uh, The Wayfair case evolved because of, as you mentioned, the change in e-commerce. Back in the 90s, e-commerce was not as prevalent as it is now. And the Supreme Court made a decision that sales by catalog, Sears catalog, Land's End catalog, I remember those. L.L. Bean catalog, was not a sufficient nexus, did not constitute a physical presence 
in a jurisdiction, a state, to subject the vendor to the requirement that the vendor collect sales tax in the state. And it was a U.S. federal constitutional issue involving due process and the Commerce Clause. Now, in the 92 case, they struck down the, due, the physical presence requirement for due process, but not for the Commerce Clause. Um, but as e-commerce grew since 1992, it became a much bigger issue. You mentioned Wayfair. I mentioned you don't have to get a physical catalog anymore for those companies I mentioned. You can just go online and look at them. There are also other things you can do now with digitalization. You can download games, music, all sorts of things. So the court reconsidered the issue in this Wayfair case, which came up from South Dakota because South Dakota passed a law that required vendors, as I mentioned, to collect the sales tax. The vendor said, we don't want to collect the sales tax. We operate in all 50 states, all the U.S. possessions, and the District of Columbia. That's too much for us to do administratively. And the Supreme Court was not very sympathetic. They said, basically, tough bananas toots. And uh, if you had one person operating in that state and the 50 states, you would still have to do it administratively. And so the physical presence test is no more. Wow. So this is the Supreme Court really stating strongly its position on U.S. tax law. What was the U.S.'s position uh, and the OECD's position um, when it came to the Big BEPS project and the global digital tax debate? Well, you're right. The Supreme Court was very harsh in its opinion. The drafters of the Wayfair opinion, three of them were signed on the majority opinion of the 92 opinion, and they were very harsh on themselves. So the Wayfair opinion is actually kind of fun to read. They referred to the physical presence test as arbitrary and formalistic. They said that it creates market distortions. The physical presence test is not necessary to create a substantial nexus and it creates incentives to avoid physical presence. Interestingly, the OECD's position with respect to the digital economy is presented in its, uh, it has a paper on the digital economy, which is divided into two pillars, pillar one and pillar two. And pillar one is really the one that addresses this question of nexus that you mentioned. And they take sort of a three-prong approach, and they also uh, basically say that physical presence is not required. And they their policy behind this is they think that the market in which the digital products are sold should get a cut of the income derived from the sale of these digital products not just the jurisdiction where the seller or vendor is headquartered. And they take, there's a formulary apportionment to allocate gain from the sale. 
to the market-facing jurisdiction. Interestingly, the United States is not signing on wholeheartedly to this position. The current status of that position at the OECD is that it there is not yet a consensus on this. Now, it's not being determined at simply the OECD level with 36 countries. It is at a much they're trying to get consensus with a much larger group of countries, approximately 130, 140 countries have to reach consensus on this. So it's a much larger group of countries that have to reach consensus. But the U.S. law with at a constitutional level is somewhat different from the U.S.'s position on the international stage so far. The U.S. is um, has said that they're not completely clear on their position. They have said that they would like it to be optional. They retracted that and said that it could be a safe harbor position. Because the OECD has not finalized its position yet, the United States has not finalized its position as to whether or not they're going to sign on to that pillar one yet. I think that the United States Treasury will be able to reach a determination once that Pillar 1 has been finalized. The OECD initiative is launched in 2012. The plan comes out in 2015, and the first reports come out in 2017. And as the decade concluded, there was still no consensus on addressing the digital economy. In the lead-up to the 2017 tax law, was there any influence coming in from this larger BEPS initiative? Well, I'm not sure that the United States would like to say that they were responding to the OECD just because that's how the United States operates. But there are definitely provisions in the 2017 Act that are responsive to the concerns raised in the some of the BEPS actions. So, for example, the BEAT provision, which is base erosion and anti-abuse tax, uh, that really provides for a minimum tax uh, on income. That is something that is in the BEPS program. BEPS also has an anti-hybrid provision, and we enacted a provision that similarly limits tax consequences or tax benefits of hybrid transactions and hybrid entities. We have CFC rules. That's one of the things that BEPS is suggesting. We have some modifications, one can say, to our CFC rules that involve the uh, participation exemption provisions as well as the guilty provisions. The guilty refers to the global intangible low-tax income, which are modified by the FIDI rules, foreign-derived intangible income. The thing I'd like to say about both the foreign-derived intangible income and the global intangible low-tax income is that those are formulary calculations as opposed to calculations actually derived from intangible assets. Um, And why is that important? Well, formulary calculations are easier to calculate than actually finding your intangible assets and trying to derive income, figuring out what income is attributable to the intangible assets, and justifying and tracing 
income. I think having had to calculate things for people. <laughs> um, so that's something interesting. It's also interesting because the United States is taking a formulary approach to things as opposed to an arm's length approach to things with respect to intangibles. It's a small, tiny little thing because the United States is still very much in favor of arm's length apportionment and um, the arm's length principle. These are small calculations. They will, we will argue strenuously. Um, and these are adjustments applicable mostly to controlled foreign corporations. Saying the 2017 tax law was influenced by the OECD BEPS initiative is perhaps strong, but maybe it's fair to say that it was informed by it. Um, was there was there influence back and forth? I would say yes. I would say there was influence back and forth. I that's my opinion. You know, people are happy to have you disagree, but I think that the OECD. And other member countries of the OECD definitely have been influenced by U.S. tax policy. I'm an American. I think the U.S. is a leader in tax policy. Um, for example, we've had CFC rules since 1962, and one of the BEPS action plans is for other jurisdictions to enact CFC controlled foreign corporation rules. Sorry to use acronyms. In addition, the anti-hybrid rules are a reaction to the U.S. check-the-box rules and some of the treaty provisions that are in the BEPS action plans reflect the, the U.S. influence with respect to arbitration. We're leaders in that area as well, I think. So I do think there is some give and take. I think that's a good thing. We are a member. The United States is a member of the OECD, and so we should have some influence, as other countries might influence us in favorable ways when appropriate. So aside from reacting to changing international business practices, what else were the aims of the 2017 tax law? And are we seeing those accomplished as we have exited the decade? Well, I think some of the aims... The drafters of the 2017 Act wanted to lower tax rates, which we they did. One cannot argue with that. They clearly lowered tax rates. They wanted to stimulate the economy, and towards that end, they made significant changes in lots of domestic areas, for example, cost recovery for manufacturers and as far as stimulating the economy from an international perspective, the intention was with the participation exemption system to encourage people to bring money back into the United States. That seems to have not panned out the way they expected based on the statistics we've seen. Uh, not as much money has come back into the United States, whether that's because the money wasn't there in the first place or people have better things to do offshore with the money, for example, invested in their operations offshore or not, is yet to be seen. So that the things they wanted to get done, I'm not sure, are actually getting done. I think maybe they intended at the outset for tax simplification, but that definitely is not what happened either from an international perspective. They added several new code sections. And 
something I've heard from some of my friends in academia is a reference to this is actually tax complification <laughs> rather than simplification. So one of the big problems with the legislation was that it was done on a partisan basis rather than a bipartisan basis. And as a consequence, they have been unable to enact technical corrections to the statute. That is a huge problem. Also, they've not been able to get through any subsequent legislation to correct things in the 2017 Act that were not able to be corrected simply by technical corrections. So they couldn't get technical corrections. They can't get any corrections done to it. So um, they haven't gotten simplification done. They haven't gotten the infusion of cash into the United States that was intended to get accomplished. Um, there has not been an infusion of money into the FISC that was supposed to happen as a consequence of that to make up for the lower rates. And so whatever else they intended to have happen doesn't seem to be working out so well for them at this point. So, Mary, what are your takeaways from these significant tax policy initiatives that we should be taking forward into the next decade? I think from a tax policy perspective, something that isn't news but is important to keep in mind is that passing legislation without bipartisan support is always going to be problematic. We've been confronted with that this time, and that's a problem. I think that on a going forward basis, we are still awaiting significant guidance on these new provisions which isn't to say Treasury and the service have done a yeoman's job of getting guidance out. Having been there, having done that, the, the amount of guidance they have gotten out in such a short amount of time is really incredible. But the complexity of the provisions just leads, and as I mentioned, the technical corrections and the issues that are out there leaves taxpayers with a good amount of uncertainty going forward into the next decade. And that creates significant problems for taxpayers. How they are going to structure business transactions going forward, how they're going to transact business, how they're going to report transactions, those are issues that are going to affect decisions going forward and are going to be somewhat problematic. Uncertainty is always a bad thing. The other thing that I would like to mention is just the incredible deficit that has been created by this legislation and the fact that it hasn't led to the return of income to the United States, has not created the revenue that the Trump administration was expecting, and that's a problem for the deficit, and then has not created the infrastructure support that they were hoping with the return of capital uh, from offshore that they were hoping for. Those problems that are going to affect tax policy going forward, because no matter how purist you want to be with your tax policy, the deficit is going to affect what Congress can do going forward. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. Thank you, Siri. Always a pleasure to spend time with you. That's all for this week's episode. For more tax and accounting news, visit news.bloombergtax.com. And you can follow us at tax on Twitter. 
From Washington, I'm Siri Belusu. Thanks for listening. Cases and Controversies is all about the Supreme Court. One of the oh, come on. Words. You know, come on. Well, I agree Be with serious. you. We sit down with leading practitioners and scholars to break down these cases. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up so I didn't have to. But, uh... <laughs> oh, I interesting, know that. Right? That is See? interesting. I guess my imagination is running wild. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tune in every week for our deep dive and sneak peek episodes wherever you get your podcasts. As always, check out the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Ha, 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 ha.